Okay, last week we closed Acts chapter 5. We were looking at the major reactions to the work of the apostles or the church or the spread of the gospel, however you want to say that. We have people who are half-hearted, will not, they're not joining because they don't want to end up dead like Ananias and Sapphira. People who are fully committed continue to be added on a regular basis to the Christian community. You've got the temple leaders who are Sadducees. That's this particular tribe of Jewish leader. Those guys are jealous at the success of the 12 apostles, and they're furious that these 12 uneducated men will not listen to them and do what they say. And then we also saw there was a Pharisee named Gamaliel who takes a reserved approach. He says, let's just wait and see how this whole thing plays out, and we'll look at that a little bit more um, next week and how that uh, impacts what happens with the church. Today we're going to read just seven verses in chapter 6. In those days... When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, so those are the Greek-speaking Jews, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve apostles gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip and then five other guys that you don't know. Uh, They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That might be some of how Gamaliel's uh, decision played in. Um, Maybe his, as a Pharisee, some of his... um, openness, at least, to see if God is in the midst of what these disciples are doing probably made it easier for these priests to convert to Christianity. So here's the scene, probably five years after Acts chapter 1 and 2. So five years after Easter, five years after the first Pentecost, that's probably about where we are. The church is large, thousands and thousands of people, but it's still completely Jewish. So Christianity is a subset of Judaism at this point. They're actually, they would say there's no such thing as Christianity. They would say we're Jews who are following the Messiah and his name is Jesus. So everything is still happening under the umbrella and the context of Judaism, but it's not homogenous. We see at least two major groups. We've got Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews who would have been from other countries in the world. Uh, And then we've got Hebraic or uh, Hebrew-Aramaic-speaking Jews who would be from Jerusalem and the Holy Land. So there's one temple in Jerusalem, but there's multiple synagogues. And so you've got some different congregations going on there. Again, they're meeting together daily with the apostles in the temple courts, but they still have their own languages and some of their own customs as well. And we've got widows that are Greek-speaking who are being left out when the food is distributed every day. So remember some of the pictures we've seen of the church up to this point where there's no need among them and you've got people selling property and giving that money to the apostles who are then using that money to take care of other people's needs. And there's a group that's not being taken care of. It's these Greek-speaking widows. And there's probably a decent number of them. It would not be uncommon if I was a Jew and I lived in Egypt, if I knew I was getting towards the end of my life, I'd take Misty and say, hey, we're going to go move to Jerusalem and I want to die in the Holy Land. I want to, I want to be buried in this holy city so when the Messiah comes back, my bones will be there. It'll be easier for me on the resurrection or whatever because I'll already be there. And then I die and she's left in a foreign city without any support, without any family. She can't get a job. She's too old to remarry. And so she's, she's stuck. If the community of faith doesn't take care of her, she's literally going to starve. So it's a significant 
issue. It's real. It's significant. The Old Testament says repeatedly, take care of widows and orphans. They're the two most vulnerable groups in the community. And so you've got this group that comes to the apostles and says, our women, our widows are being left out. And the apostles don't hear their response as arrogant. It can sound arrogant, but I don't think that's what was going on. Their response is... It wouldn't be right for us to take care of it. Literally, they're saying it it would not be pleasing in God's eyes for us to begin to do that. So step back. I don't think there's a heart issue in the church at this point. I think it's a logistical issue. Again, you've got thousands and thousands of people who've become converts over the last five years. You've got, I would say, hundreds and hundreds of widows. And you've got 12 guys who, according to what we see in the Gospels, don't necessarily have tons of administrative gifts and have never run an organization this big. Think about the the logistics of getting food to a couple of hundred, 300, 500 people every day. Collecting the money, either buying or making the food, getting it out, You've got multiple languages that you're dealing with. It's a lot to keep up with. And every day, new people are being added to the faith. And so that's new people who you have to figure out who are they and what do they know and what do they have and what do they need. And it's a lot for these 12 guys. Four of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector. We don't know what the other guys did. We don't know their background. That's a lot. When we first moved here... Uh, Eight years ago, we had this building that you're in now all the way back to the glass. And my office was in that front left corner. And I was the only full-time employee. And so I would keep the windows. I wouldn't shut the blinds. Because if I met with a a woman and I was the only one here, there was kind of like the accountability window there so people could see in uh, when I was working. And it took um, about half a minute for people to realize there's a new church on the square And the pastor is a sissy. And so I would have people come in all the time asking for things, anything, everything, and anything. And my first response, this was my really righteous, compassionate, was to say, I'm going to help everybody once. And once the word gets out, you help everybody once. There's a whole lot of everybody's. And their once is really big. This is what I need. Some of the, then I tried to get to the spot where I was saying, all right, I'm going to try to figure out who's telling the truth and who's not nightmare. I was, you know, there was times I was looking through. I didn't know what I was looking at, asking people to bring me documentation. What didn't matter. I spent hours and hours, and some of the needs were legitimate and right, and we, and need, and we needed to address. And some people were just scamming. Like, I wouldn't, people got the church's phone number, and they would call, and I wouldn't answer And they would be knocking on the window with the phone. I see you. It's terrible. So then we hired Kim. And I delegated all of that. And she didn't get anything done. And it was necessary work. These are real people. Many of whom had legitimate needs and nowhere to go. So they're absolute. But that wasn't most of the people. Most of them were people who were desperate. And they saw a church and thought, maybe. And thankfully, a couple years after that, there's a group of guys, and I think they're from reading Acts chapter 6, they said, hey, we want to do that. And so from Thursdays, from 10 to 12, they started opening up the church just to give us a couple of hours of a break. 
And they would meet with people, and they help people get birth certificates and IDs. And I don't know that anybody else does that. It's a huge hole in our system. And they would give people bus passes so they could get around and Cokes and crackers. And that's expanded. Now they do that four days a week, Monday through Thursday, 10 to 12. And they help people get prescriptions. And I think they're just now starting to help people with emergency shelters. And this thing is getting bigger and bigger. And they're taking care of people. And I guarantee you it saves me 20 to 25 hours a week. Easy. Easy. So I'm multiply that times 10 or 20 or whatever it is for this group with thousands. We didn't have thousands. They have hundreds of widows. We didn't have that. And I was still overwhelmed. Their assignment very clearly, be witnesses. They can't do that if they're waiting tables. Waiting tables is not bad. It's not less than. It's very significant responsibility. But for them... They're to be witnesses. That's what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. There's a very small number of people who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection and who spent three years traveling around with him so they can say, these are the things that he taught and this is how we live. It's a small pool that you're drawing from. So for these 12 guys, it is vital that they stick to their assignment of being witnesses or the whole movement slows down. It doesn't mean taking care of widows is less than or secondary. And again, they're not being arrogant. They just recognize what their assignment is and what their assignment isn't. And so what they say is a brilliant response. They're empathetic and compassionate towards the people who have a need, but they don't get in the weeds of meeting it. They say, hey, why don't y'all bring some people to us? Bring, Bring some guys who can take care of this. And they bring seven guys. They're all Greek speaking. We'll look at Stephen next week and Philip. Uh, the week after that, those are the only two of the seven that we hear from again. Y'all, and then the people love it. Yeah, we're going to let these guys be in charge. The apostles lay hands on them to say for everybody, these guys are in charge. We're delegating this authority and responsibility to them. And we see, I think it's a sign of God's favor, kind of his seal of approval on the decision because the church continues to grow. So I was thinking about that for us and not necessarily a direct correlation. We've got lots of social services that help people who are in need. Um, there's a stronger organizational structure in the church community to help people in need. And so what are your, you know, we've got Kay who's here. She works at Must. If you're not working at Must, is this really a, how does this connect in uh, for you and for your life? And the, reason, the way I was thinking about it was this idea of calling or assignment. Again, in Acts 1-8, these 12 apostles are given a very clear assignment, and then we see their faithfulness to that assignment challenge. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. They're threatened by religious leaders. They're thrown in jail a couple of times. It's a brief period that they're in jail, but they are in jail. We know of two. There may have been others. We know they got beaten. We looked at that last week. 39 lashes, 39 licks with a leather whip, 13 on your chest, 26 on your back. We don't know if that happened again. It happened at least once. They were challenged in their faithfulness. These temple authorities are saying, stop doing what you're doing. And we saw last week, they don't quit. They rejoice that they're considered worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. They go right back to the place where they got arrested, and they continue to preach the same message. Those challenges don't slow them down. We see another challenge here. It's internal. I don't I don't know if it's helpful to see it as a complaint. When I think of complaining, I think of like selfish, petty griping. That's not what this is. This is a legitimate need. It's a significant issue that's being brought to their attention. It's a hole in their life together. Everything we've read about the church up to this point, one heart, one mind, no needs. And that is threatening to to kind of unravel 
here because of this issue with this group of widows. And I think this is probably the greatest threat to their faithfulness to their assignment. When those external, when that persecution, when that external stuff is coming, it's easy to say, you know what, that's, that's the enemy. We're not giving in to that. Jesus said very clearly, we're going to be persecuted, we're going to be arrested, we're going to be beaten, we're going to be flogged. He told us this would happen. And so now that it's happening, we consider ourselves worthy to suffer for his name and we're going to keep plowing ahead. This is different. There's passages in the Old Testament that say take care of widows. Think about the compassion you would have when you see these. You know if we're not giving them food, they are not eating. How long can they go? Think about kind of the, the sense of responsibility you would have as a leader in that regard. Again, any sense of compassion or empathy, belief from the Old Testament, knowing what God says about taking care of widows, all of that kind of mingling around. I would think the temptation to jump in and fix it would be really, really strong. I think it would be hard to say, you know what, that is super important, and I'm not going to get involved. It's hard. That was a challenge to their faithfulness, to their assignment. First thing for us, there's only two things. First thing for us, do you have any clarity? Do you have any clarity on what God has said to you about how to live your life? The disciples had clarity. These apostles, let's use that word instead. The apostles had clarity. Jesus in the flesh said to them, here's what you're going to do. You're going to be my witnesses and here's where you're going to do it. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. He gave them an assignment and he gave them boundaries for where that assignment would be carried out. Do you have anything when you think about your own life? Last week, if you were here, we talked about this guy, George Mueller, this stud in the faith from about 100 years ago. Over the course of 60 years, you could see some of the things he did there. Ran five children's homes in Bristol, England, took care of over 10,000 orphans. He got he he funded 5000 5 million excuse me pieces of literature christian literature going out he supported 115 missionaries you see that number 244 million dollars passed through his hands over the course of 60 years and he didn't ask for a penny never sent out a support letter never made a plea for money all he did was pray and that's what god provided for him but i didn't say last week was George Mueller, the reason he could stand on faith and say, God, you said you would take care of orphans, so take care of these orphans. You said you wanted the gospel to the nations, so you provide for the gospel to go to the nations. He was so convinced. He read the Bible 200 times cover to cover over the course of those 60 years. And there were certain passages that really resonated deep within him that grabbed his heart. And he took those passages and he wrapped his life around them. There's about four or five If you read his biography, there's four or five bullet points. And he says, these are the things for me. These are the ones that I'm shaping and wrapping my life around. I've become convinced of these truths through the Bible, and I'm going to hold God to his word. With all reverence, I'm going to hold God to his word. He talked about arguing with God. He made a case. I read this one thing. He brought 14 arguments to God one time. said, here are the reasons you've got to answer my prayer. Just pile them up. Again, with all reverence, because he was convinced... Of what he knew in the Bible. What about for you? Is there anything when you're thinking about your life? Any stakes that you're willing to put in the ground? You can think about it multiple ways. That language of assignment or calling. Or at Stonebridge we call it doing your deal. Do you have any sense of what that is? 
We've got some people here that say, hey, my, my thing is to influence leaders or to help kids figure out their identity in Christ or to take care of single moms or rescue ladies from trafficking or whatever. Do you have any sense of a calling or an assignment? Be witnesses, something like that. Values. I feel like this is super helpful, particularly for those of you who are married. Sometimes calling can feel very individual, and how does that relate to our family? When you think about values, is there one, two, maybe three? And you say, as a family, this is, this is it for us. This is foundational. This is what we're wrapping and shaping our life around, if it's service or generosity or simplicity or whatever those things are. Boundary lines, great psalm, Psalm 16. Go back and look at it if you want. The boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. In the Old Testament, it was a sin to move your property markers because God was the one that determined your land. It's the second half of Joshua. That's what that whole book is. Excuse me, the second half of that book. It's like a surveying document. It's brutal because God is saying, here's the land that each tribe gets. Here are the boundary lines for you. Do you have those? That may be a way for you to think about it. Look at Misty and I for us. We, the boundary lines for us. We felt called to a very particular spot in Marietta. We, we were renting. When it came time to buy, there were two, two districts. We said, we'll live in either one of those. And we had a budget. And we said, this is it. And there were only two houses. And one of them smelled like cat urine. And so it was easy. That hurts your resale value if you're thinking about that. I thought they were supposed to use a litter box. I'm not a cat guy. So anyway, what is it? Do you have anything? Some of you, it's money. John Wesley, guy founded the Methodist Church, lived on about 30 pounds a year. And originally, that's what he made. He lived on what he made. And then he made 40 pounds. And then he made 60. And then he made 100. And toward the end of his life, he was making 1,000 pounds around a year because of his books and everything. And he stayed at the same standard of living. He continued to live on 30 pounds a year no matter how much money he made. That was a boundary line for him. That may be one for you. Do you know anything about what God is? Are there any stakes that you'd be willing to put in the ground. If you're single, this can be hard because it's almost like you could say, I can do anything. You can almost be paralyzed by the options and the opportunities. If you're married and you already have a family, you may be saying, I can't do, I can't make any changes. I've got too many commitments and obligations already. I want to encourage you. There's nothing that you're doing this week. Nothing at all. That's more important than figuring out how Jesus wants you to live your life. Nothing. So take some time. And do that. Begin to ask him, what are you saying to me? Is it values? Whatever your language is, show me one or two things, stakes that you want me to put in the ground. And I'll begin to do that. Most of us end up living our life like this. We respond to whoever is yelling the loudest. We respond to whoever is yelling the Unless the most urgent need, some of you, you're, you chase squirrels all day long. That's all you're doing. It's like that whack-a-mole thing. One pops up. That's all you're doing. You don't have any sense that you're being led. You don't have any sense of direction overall in your life. It's just like, what wheel is squeaky? I'm looking over at the teenagers. What wheel is squeaky? And we deal with that until the next one starts squeaking. It's a terrible way to live. I get it, but it's a terrible way to live. You wake up after a year or five years or ten years and all you've done is put out fires. It's not how God intends for you to live. 
at all. For some of us, it's expectations of other people, our own expectations. Those yell the loudest. For some of us, it's our own insecurity that yells. For sometimes, it's just it's whatever got pinned or posted or tweeted, and that's what is yelling the loudest, and we shape our life around. I don't want you to do any of that. I want you to have a strong sense. This is what he's saying. I'm going to shape my life around that. Recognize it's going to be challenged 100%. It's totally going to happen. You'll be challenged by the enemy just like the disciples were, and you'll see that coming. It's the what-if game. Some of you live chasing hypotheticals. That is never the Lord. Nothing is hypothetical for him. And so if you're chasing that rabbit, he's not the one leading you down that road. A lot of us, that locks us up into fear and indecision. We want him not doing anything. Don't do that. The one that's much more likely to trip you up, though, just like I think it probably was a, a stronger temptation for the apostles, is something good that comes along, a competing good. You have this sense of this is the, these are the boundary lines for me. You know, as a family, this is our value. We're going to live generously. We start to talk about what that looks like. And then the next thing that happens is our refrigerator dies. Oh, what are we, you know, and that gets fixed. And then... Something else, and it's something else, and it's something else. You know how that goes. We, as a family, this is what we're going to do. Or maybe you decide individually, you know what? I'm going to give time. It's my most precious resource. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin to give time in service. And the next thing that happens, your boss drops a big project on your lap, and you're done. You're going to be challenged. And those things that they have, that's, some of it is life and some of it's competing goods. And that's why it's so important to have clarity. We talked about this guy before, Eric Little. You remember him? Chariots of fire. He runs funny, but he runs fast. Scottish presumed gold medalist in the 1924 Olympics in the 100 meters. He was the favorite to win. First gold medal in that uh, category for Britain. In the fall of 1923, they do the Olympic trials to see who's going to go to the Olympics. And his trial is on a Sunday. So he says, I'm not running. Sunday's the Sabbath. I rest. I don't run. Imagine the pressure he felt around that decision. It's just one day. It's not really work. It's the Olympics. It's every four years. The hopes of your nation are pinned on you. You're being legalistic. How many times do you think somebody said that to him? You're being a legalist. You're free in Christ. Just run the race. He doesn't do it. Because for him, the conviction point is it's the Sabbath and we rest. He says, I'm going to run the 400. Everybody says, great, you stink at that. Go run the 400. He wins the gold and sets a world record. That doesn't work out for us that way most of the time. But sometimes. The point is, he had clarity. He had conviction It was challenged, not by anything evil and wicked, by something good, by opportunity. But he knew, there was, was, again, there was a sense of conviction and clarity in his heart. And so when the challenge came, he was able to remain faithful to the things God had put in him. And so that's, to me, it's, it's both of those things. We've got to start with the clarity. God, what are you saying? What are the one or the two things, the three things that you're saying for me individually, or if I'm married, for us as a family? What are the things you're saying? What are the stakes in the ground? Then recognize the challenge is going to come. Many of us bail on things. And the excuse I hear is, I don't want to be legalistic. 
I don't know anybody. That's not true. I don't know many people who are about to fall into that ditch of being too scrupulous in their obedience. Most of us, the ditch that we fall into is, I'm bored, or this is hard, so I want to do something different. That's where most. Of, that's why New Year's resolutions last seven days. We just quit. It's not because we're legalistic. It's because we're, we get bored and we want to quit. Don't hear that as condemnation. I just don't want you to let yourself off the hook. For some of you, you know prayer. That's something God has said. You've got to be a person who prays. And so you say, I'm going to get up at 6. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to pray from 6 to 6.30 or 6.15. And you do it for three days. And then you stay up late watching the movie on Hallmark Channel. And the next morning, it's 6, and what do you do? Snooze. Why? Because you're not a legalist. You'll do it later. You don't do it later. And then the next day, maybe you do, and then it's two days you miss the next week, and then pretty soon, you've let it go. Don't hear that as condemnation. It's where most of us live. I've done that before with fasting. I remember this time I said, I'm not going to eat meat, and I'm not going to eat sweets. And that's all I eat. It was the dumbest thing I ever did. And I remembered, no lie, this is what I said, I'm going to only eat things that grow. That was my positive way of saying that. By the end, I was eating anything made of wheat because wheat grows, and so does corn. Doritos, Cheez-Its, they grow. At some point in the process, there was something that grew. That wasn't me, and and, uh, I'm not a legalist. I'm a quitter. That's all that is. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't want you to lose that. I don't want you to lose the freedom and the joy and the fruit that comes from living around one or two or three convictions because you're afraid of being labeled a legalist. It will be hard. You will be challenged. And it has the potential to change the world. Let's pray. We're not going to have, uh, I'm just going to lead you. It's, it's 1228, so I'm just going to, I want you to pray with me and then I'll dismiss you. If you would, I'm going to make you put yourself in one of two categories. You're either, you don't have clarity, or you have clarity, and you need to know exactly, what does this look like living this out? Does that make sense? Think about Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, that wisdom, the practical knowledge, the I know how to get things done. I can organize this. I can set up the chain, the process. That's, you're, you're missing that, that wisdom piece. What does this look like in my life? It's category two or category one. You don't have a clue. You're like, I got, I got nothing. So category one, people, pray with me, if you would. All the way down, high school and all the way up. God, my prayer is for everyone in this room who doesn't have a sense of what you're calling on their life. Is there not any sense of what the race is that you've marked out for them? No sense of what the values are that are important to them. Would you speak this week? God, I pray for our teenagers. And before they get lost in the world of work and all of those things, God, when they can still be idealistic in a lot of ways, would you put some things deep in their heart? 
some convictions about how to live life, God, for our singles who I know can be, it's almost like the, the world is their oyster, and so how, how do they even move? Would you speak very clearly to them? Here are the values. Here's the calling. God, for our newlyweds who are in the honeymoon stage, before they get too busy with kids and mortgages, would you speak to them when they're, what do they want to say when they're sitting on the rocking chairs, sipping lemonade in 70 years, and they look back? What's a fruitful and a faithful life? God, for those of us who are already in that stage, and we're thinking, man, I can't move anything around. No, no room, no room to shift, no room to add. I can't see what in the world I could ever take away. God, I pray for a word to us. One or two things. I want to pray for husbands in this room. They would lead in this area. Guys, take your wife out this week. Let 30 minutes of the conversation, you lead in this area, which means you've got to be prepared. So pray, ask the Lord. Think about the points of pain in your life that may very well be where he's wanting to work. And bring it up. Don't be a dictator. Don't be a jerk. Just, and don't be passive. This is what I'm thinking. Let her respond. And y'all together figure it out. What is God saying to us? God, I pray for those who are empty nesters. We're going, what do I do with the rest of my life? Speak to them, God. There's no retirement in the kingdom. And so show them, what, what are the things? Is it Act 6? Is it something else? What are the things that you want to, them to give their life to? But God, for all of us, my prayer is that we would all have clarity. We would have a deep sense of conviction around one or two or three things that you say, for us, we need to wrap our life around. Other people might not, but for us, we need to wrap our life around. God, I pray for those in that second group. They know. They know what the big rocks are in their life. They know the stakes in the ground. They just need wisdom. How, do I, how does this play out? What steps do I take? God, would you show them? God, I pray that you give them eyes to see the challenges, the places where they're prone to compromise. God, if there is any um, temptation to legalism in the hearts of anyone in this room, I pray that you would convict of that as well. But Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen us, that we would not quit because things get difficult or because we have to make hard choices or because we say no to the good in order to say no to the to say yes to the best or whatever those things are. God, we want to live with purpose. So God, would you speak to us now, I pray. And would you lead us moving forward this week. In Jesus name. Amen. You guys are free to go.